You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click donate. I want to be careful with this ethic of enemy love. First, this ethic, it does not mean that we should expect reconciliation without change, without reparations from our enemies. To expect the victims of violence to reconcile with their oppressors in the midst of ongoing oppression is in itself, it's violent. Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. This is episode 312, and our title is The Ethic of Enemy Love, Part 1. Our feature text is from Luke 6:27, but to you you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those that curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus's love your enemy ethic is one of his most challenging teachings. Along with his economic teachings for the wealthy elites, uh, it remains the deal breaker for, for many who initially desire to follow him. At the heart of Jesus's ethical teachings about God, about ourselves, and others was this principle of loving your enemies. And it was as if Jesus were saying, I know you've been taught to love your neighbor. Now I'm going to teach you how to love your enemies. This teaching of Jesus it's never proven to be popular. In the Gospels, many of the, the rich, outside of those uh, uh, labeled as publicans and tax collectors, the others who were rich, they, they could not love the poor. And the poor, on the other side of that equation, could not love their oppressors. Uh, we have enough evidence to say that it was the, the poor people's revolt in Judea during the latter half of the first century that led to the, the Roman-Jewish war, the, the raising of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 CE, and the almost total genocide of the Jewish people in 132 to 136 CE when the Bar Koba, uh, uh, I think that's how you pr- pronounce that, uh, revolt. But the picture we get of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is that of an itinerant teacher who had enough wisdom to see where his contemporaries' exploitation and anger and despair would lead them. It was the exploitation of the poor on one side and the anger and despair of the poor on the other. And all that those who carry the name of Christian today could could do the same. They could see where what's headed, what the result of their present actions are. The Gospels were written between the Jewish revolt of the 60s and the, the destruction of the 130s by Jesus followers who are trying to make sense of the devastation that had taken place in Jerusalem. And it makes sense that they would write uh, of a death at Rome's hands and a resurrection that led to a distributively just world where peace reigns in the end. Not only had they seen, uh, uh, well, think about it. You have the context of of the death of of, of the temple in Jerusalem by at the hands of Rome, and so you, you write this story about Jesus who 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 died at the hands of Rome as well, but in three days later was raised back to life. They characterized Jesus as gathering whomever will join him in a revolutionary alternative way of living and structuring life. In the Gospels, 
Jesus' social vision, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. And it's a phrase that would have resonated deeply in the culture of the gospel's original audience. The kingdom was not a, a world someplace out in the heavens that one had to die to reach. And Jesus taught that another world was possible here and now if we choose it. Jesus' teachings were about our communal lives together. They radically rearranged, those teachings radically rearranged how human beings arrange their society, and they involved change in those in positions of power and privilege who were responsible for the systemic injustice that they were actually benefiting from themselves. They also, Jesus' teachings also involved some, some form of love for those who had been deeply hurt by those same people and those same systems, and it was love toward the very ones that they were confronting who were responsible for these hurts and their their it would love for 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 their oppressors within their calls for change. Let's talk about for, uh, for a moment reconciliation without change. Sometimes folks will focus or they'll emphasize reconciliation and they'll ignore the changes that need to come about in that context. I want to be careful with this ethic of enemy love. First, this ethic it does not mean that we should expect reconciliation without change, without reparations from our enemies. I'm reminded of Jacqueline Grant's words in her classic work, uh, White Women's Christ and Black Women's Jesus. In this book, she speaks of the partnership that white women expected from black women in work that would benefit women of privilege when white women had not engaged the same kind of partnership or involvement in the causes of, of, of uh, women who were disenfranchised much more. This is page 191. From a black woman's vantage point then, the language of partnership is merely a rewording of the language of reconciliation which proves empty rhetoric unless it is preceded by liberation. I don't believe that Jesus taught reconciliation without liberation and reparations. Reconciliation follows liberation. It follows reparations. It follows systemic change. And to expect the victims of violence to reconcile with their oppressors in the midst of ongoing oppression, even when the injustice is systemic, is in itself, it's violent. Luke's Jesus taught, he's the same guy that taught enemy love, but he also taught reparations by those who, who were considered to be the enemy. Consider these words in Luke, uh, it's in Luke's gospel by Zacchaeus. This is Luke 19, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Here's Zacchaeus is becoming a follower of Jesus. And as a person who would have been considered an enemy of the poor uh, by those that he had exploited, becoming a Jesus follower, it meant reparations towards those he had cheated and to the poor in general. This is telling in, in regards to what Zacchaeus felt Jesus' teachings expected of him. And in the face of Zacchaeus's model, we have to be suspicious of theologies of reconciliation who promote either Christian or civil unity at the price of ignoring injustice, both in the past and in the present. 
And let's talk about holding on to our enemy's humanity. So what does enemy love mean? Well, for me, it's best expressed by Barbara Deming in her book, uh, Revolution and Equilibrium. After stating that the practitioner of nonviolent resistance obstructs an enemy's actions, refusing to honor the role that the enemy chooses, uh, Barbara Deming quickly adds that we also say to them, uh, this is from page 224, I won't let go of you or cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make a better choice than you're making now, and I'll be here when you're ready. Like it or not, we are part of one another. Uh, consider the prayer that Luke's gospel places on the lips of Jesus in his closing moments on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, I understand there are debates over whether this prayer was genuinely original to Jesus. But even so, I don't want us to miss the narrative purpose that it serves in Luke's Jesus story. What is this prayer but Jesus asking for his God, uh, 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 asking his God for his enemies, uh, not to be, in Deming's words, cast out of the human race? He's asking for his God to not reject his own enemies. This is a prayer for his enemies not to be destroyed and not to be let go of either. It assumes Jesus's faith in his enemies' potential to make better choices than they, in Deming's words, are making now. The cross, remember, it was the social elite's violent no to God's just future. The resurrection was God's nonviolent response and enabling and empowering the hope of that just future to live on. Jesus's community were to hold on to a vision of the future where enemies were not destroyed so that we can just get on with paradise, but rather where enemies are transformed and our enemies learn to evolve into better humans, seeking to shape the world according to distributive justice, while choosing to hold on to the ethic of enemy love, holding both of those in tension is entirely revolutionary. It's a radical break from our deepest instincts. It goes against what we've been taught is the way to survive. And it calls us to, to go against how we've been indoctrinated and the narratives that we've been handed. Today, Jesus's hope for a just future, it still extends an ongoing invitation. And to follow Jesus on this point, it's most likely the most revolutionary thing that a human being can do to practice enemy love and not only to, 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 to work towards changing our world, but to also do so in such a way that the inhabitants of our world are changed too. Jesus offers a vision for a world where distributive justice, love, and compassion, according to Matthew 6.10, they reign on earth as they do in heaven. We're today, we're too skilled at taming revolutions and making them conventional. We're too skilled at, at turning things like the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of enemy love into complicity with society as we've always known it. What if the ethic of enemy love and the energy that we spend towards survival and resistance and liberation and reparation and, and transformation, uh, what if... 
What if they don't inspire us to accept the injustice of our enemies, but instead inspire us to hope for genuine and lasting change, not only in society, but change in those that are responsible for the way society is presently shaped as well. Uh, For the next seven days, I want you to engage in a practice that will help you move toward this ethic of enemy love. Each day, take a few minutes once a day to stop and think of the person on this planet that you like the least. And then, with them in your mind, I want you to repeat these words as if you're speaking directly to them. What you have done or what you are doing is not right. I refuse to accept your actions. At the same time, I won't let go of you. I won't cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make better choices than you are making now, and I'll be here when you choose to do so. Like it or not, we are part of one another. And then, after doing this for seven days, I want you to find someone to share what you've experienced with uh, through these th- this experiment over the next seven days. If you're willing, also, I'd like to hear your stories. Drop us a line at RenewedHeartMinistries.com. Click on the, the Contact Us link or shoot me an email at info at RenewedHeartMinistries.com. And, and I, again, I would just love to hear what you experience from doing this over the next week. Heart Group application, this is it. Number one, engage in this practice throughout the next week through this this, uh, 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 picturing of this person and saying these words. And then number two, I want you to journal what you experience. And then number three, I want you to even also share with your heart group what you've experienced through this exercise. Thanks for checking in with us this week. Right where you are today, keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.